Luke chapter 2 is where we are this morning. We are continuing in our series through Luke, obviously. And so far we've seen uh, various responses from different people um, at the announcement and the coming of Christ, right? So we've seen different characters in the opening chapters of Luke. We've seen Elizabeth, if you remember, who's already had a supernatural pregnancy herself. She's given birth now to John the Baptist. We've heard from Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her Magnificat in chapter 1. We've seen Zechariah, who's Elizabeth's husband, who's the father of John the Baptist, if you're keeping track. And, and his response is after God has opened his mouth and, and given him the ability to speak again. And then last week, we saw at the beginning of chapter 2, even the response of the angels who've announced that Christ has been born. And they sing praises to him. And this morning, in the next passage in chapter 2, we're going to see a few more responses. And we're going to focus mainly, the focus of the text being the response of a man named Simeon. And Simeon, if if you don't, if you're not familiar with him, he's not in the Bible much. In fact, it's really just today uh, in in Luke's gospel that we hear about him. But he's a great character, okay? He's a great guy. And, And in a weird way, Simeon, he makes me think of the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees, um, and let me explain that. And, and by the way, I am new to New York, uh, but I am, I'm not unaware of the minefield that I'm going to casually skip through this morning when I talk about Yankees and Red Sox from up here. Um, but I'm going to do it anyways, okay? So most of you, I'm sure, are very familiar with this, but the year 1919 began one of the most notorious droughts in all of professional sports. The year before, 1918, the Boston Red Sox won the World Series. And in fact, they had won five of the first 15 World Series before that. But in 1919, you know the story probably, the owner of the Red Sox sold a player named Babe Ruth, a.k.a. the Great Bambino. And he sold him to none other than the New York Yankees. But after the sale of Ruth, the Red Sox would go decades without ever winning another championship. All the while, the Yankees who had never been in the World Series before that time, would win 26 World Series titles in the same time span. And this turn of events birthed the folklore that you all know of as the curse of the Bambino, right? However, we know things eventually started to look up for Boston, and eventually, and in 2004, the Red Sox won their first title in 86 years. So, I'm sure there's some Boston fans here. Um, I can only imagine how elated you were in 2004 and in the playoffs as you saw your Red Sox win the title. I mean, you were witnessing something that hadn't happened in nearly a century. I mean, that's pretty amazing. In 2005, the year after, a popular sports writer and lifelong Boston fan, you might know him, his name's Bill Simmons, he wrote a book, and it chronicled this journey up to their elusive World Series win. And the title of his book was, Now I Can Die in Peace. (laughs) In our text this morning, we're going to see a host of people who are anxiously awaiting the coming of a Messiah, something that had been promised many, many, many years before that. And at the sight of the baby Jesus, one man, Simeon, joyfully declares, my eyes have seen the salvation, now I can die in peace. Right? So Luke chapter 2, you there? Verse 22 is our next passage. Verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. 
as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So at this point, Luke's gospel, right, this far along in the story, we've seen that Jesus has been supernaturally conceived and now he's been born. And Joseph and Mary, because they are careful to follow Jewish law, they come to the temple, and the text says for a couple reasons. First of all, for Mary's purification, but also for Jesus' presentation. Okay, what we mean by that is, according to Jewish law, any woman who, who gives birth to a male child is unclean for 40 days after his birth. You can read about this in the Levitical law in Leviticus chapter 12. And so the law actually calls for, after that time, the mother to come to the temple and to bring an offering. And the law called for them to bring a lamb and either a young pigeon or a turtle dove for that offering. However, the law did allow for uh, those people who might not be able to afford a lamb, because a lamb, you know, that's a good cut of meat, and, and that's going to be a little bit more expensive. If, if you couldn't afford that, you could bring a, a, another offering, and that would be a pair of turtle doves, two turtle doves, or two young pigeons. And so that's what Mary and Joseph do because they don't have a lot of money. They bring two um, turtle doves. And then they bring this for Mary's purification, but they also bring Jesus. And this is for his presentation. So if you remember, as you guys walk through the book of Exodus over the last years, uh, the, the 10th plague, you remember that? When Israel's still under bondage in Egypt, Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go, and Pharaoh doesn't want to do it. And so God is judging Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. There's 10 plagues, the last plague being, of course, the most severe. God would kill the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, except for those in Israel who would follow God's instruction. And they were to, if you remember, kill a lamb and put the blood around the doorframe. And in response to this, in Exodus 13, God declares that all firstborn in Israel would be consecrated to him. So here's Mary, here's Joseph. They bring the child Jesus to the temple to purify Mary and to present Jesus to God and consecrate him to him. But they're not alone, obviously. The temple's a happening place, very popular. And in verse 25, we meet someone else. Verse 25, excuse me. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Okay, so, so there's a guy named Simeon there. And all we know about Simeon is what's told to us right here. That he's righteous and he's devout. Presumably, he's older, right? He's nearing the end of his life, presumably, and, and he's anticipating seeing the Messiah. He's eager to see that the Lord would bring this Redeemer that he had promised for centuries before. And so we're, we're assuming he's hanging out around the temple. He's eager to see it. He's there probably every day. I mean, like Simeon is the, the season ticket holder at Fenway who goes game after game prior to season 2004, convincing themselves that this is the year, right? Simeon's there. He's at the temple, and he wants to see the Messiah. However, the privilege Simeon had was that he had got a promise. And he was told, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. So all the more reason to anticipate seeing the Messiah. And you have to remember, at this point, again— Thousands of people, at this point in time, thousands of people would go to the temple every year to make a pilgrimage. Thousands. 
from all over the place, families that would come to the temple. And so we can only imagine Simeon's curiosity, can't we? He's, he's hanging out, he's waiting for the Messiah, and he's seeing families come up to the temple with their children. And you can only imagine him in his anticipation thinking, is this the one? Is that, is that the one over there? Is that the Messiah? Is, is this the king? Is this, is this the one that my heart has been longing for? You can only imagine how anxious he is in waiting for the Messiah. We find out in the next verse that by direction of the Holy Spirit, he walks into the temple at just the right time to see the baby Jesus. Verse 27, Luke 2, verse 27. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms. And he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So here's Simeon anxiously awaiting and he sees Jesus, picks him up and he sings these words of praise. And this, this, this response of Simeon is often called the nuc dimittis. It's Latin. It's Latin for now dismissing or now departing. And what he's saying is, I can die in peace now. I can go. The person I've been waiting for, I've seen him. I've seen him with my eyes. I've seen my salvation in the child. But I want, what I want you to notice this morning is the, the description Simeon gives of Jesus here. Look again, verse 32. What does he call him? A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He calls him a light. Now, if you remember what Zechariah said in chapter 1, there's a connection there. Because when Zechariah, his mouth was opened up to sing praise about um, not only his son, but ultimately the Messiah who is coming, he, he said, uh, now with the coming of Christ, it's like a sunrise. It's like the sun has risen. You see that in chapter 1. To, to share light for all of us who've been sitting in darkness. Now here's Simeon saying, here's the light. The light has come in the child Jesus. You have to understand that Jesus as light, that description, is very important in understanding the gospel story. And the reason is, is light is a major, major theme throughout the entire Bible, right? So for example, where do we see light first mentioned in Scripture? In creation, right? Right? In the creation story in Genesis, the very opening verses of Scripture. In fact, the first few verses of Scripture foreshadow the entire story of the gospel. Because what happens? In creation, God overcomes the darkness by speaking light into existence. I mean, this is what God does. God dispels darkness with his light. This is his work. This is what he does. However, in the storyline of the Bible, as one commentator puts it, the light that was shown in creation was more like the dusk of day because night was soon coming with the fall. In the fall, night had arrived, didn't it? With Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, sin and its curse had arrived, bringing death and broken relationship to the world. The world was plunged into spiritual darkness. However, God in his grace and his mercy does not leave his people alone in the dark of night. So what we see after that point, throughout the Old Testament, God acting in various different ways to be light to his people. Right? So for example, just in the Exodus story, 
Exodus chapter 3, we see God speaking through the burning bush. Remember that? We're in Exodus 10, the ninth of those 10 plagues that we talked about a moment ago. If you remember, the, the plague was darkness over the land of Egypt where they couldn't see anything except the nation of Israel had God for their light. Exodus 13, one other example. We see God as he leads the nation of Israel out of bondage into the wilderness. At nighttime, what does he do? He's a pillar of fire that lights the way for his people. And we see this over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. God acting as light for his people. And then we see God promise that there will ultimately be a day coming when he brings an end to the night forever. And so there's lots and lots of scripture to this. I'm just going to give you a couple of them just from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2, talking about the coming Messiah that was promised. Chapter 9 verse 2, he says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Talking about this Redeemer. And then later, prophesying at the end of the book of Isaiah, what it's going to be like when God does come and he does renew all things and darkness will be dispelled. Verse 19, chapter 60, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down nor your moon withdraw itself for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Isaiah is saying there is a day. God is promising there is a day when there will be no more darkness, he will bring light and it will dispel the darkness forever. And then if you flip to the end of your Bibles, the very last chapter in the book of Revelation, and when, when the writer does it, describe this new creation, how do you think he describes it? Exactly like that. Revelation 22 verse 5. He says, a night will be no more. They, meaning the people of God, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So understand that like, the story of the Bible is all about how God overcomes the darkness brought on in the fall in Genesis 3. And it's fully restored and fully accomplished in Revelation 21 and 22, the end of the Bible. And so the question is, how do we get from there to there? How does God fully dispel this darkness? Well, the last chapter of the Old Testament is so great because it leaves us waiting with anticipation. It's like the, that great like cliffhanger, you know, when you finish a good movie or a good book and you know something good is coming, but you're not quite sure how it's going to be fulfilled. That's the end of the Old Testament, if you didn't know that. Maybe not a section you read very often. Malachi chapter 4, this is what he says, verse 1 and 2. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So the end of the Old Testament, here we are. History has not looked good before this. And in that moment, it still didn't look great. But we get this promise. The sun is going to rise. The sun is going to rise. The darkness will not always be. It will not always be night. And then we're left saying, so, so who's the son of righteousness? When's he coming? Who's he going to be? And then the gospel of John, John chapter 1, picking up on this creation theme and light, he writes these great words in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. He says, in the beginning was the word. 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And so John says, yeah, remember those promises that were made? Remember how we were waiting for this son of righteousness that was going to come with healing in his wings? And he was going to give us relief from the dark of night? He's here. He's here. And if you just make sure that there's absolutely no confusion as to who that is, later in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So to get from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 is the work of Christ, the light of the world, the new creation story, who would come and dispel the darkness that had fallen. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the work of God in the gospel, that through Jesus, darkness is overcome. Jesus is the light of the world. And that day at the temple, Simeon saw it. He recognized it. I I see the light. I see the sun rising, as Zechariah had said just the chapter before. Darkness is fleeing because the light is here. And then he says more things. It's great. Verse 33, Luke 2, verse 33, back to our passage. It says, And his father and his mother, this Mary and Joseph, marveled at what was said about him, about Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, in the previous announcements of the birth of Christ, um, they've been pretty filled with joy, haven't they? Right? Like these people are coming and they're announcing, hey, Jesus is here. The king that we've been waiting for is finally here. He's going to take up his throne. Even the angels announcing to everyone, hey, peace on earth. The Messiah is here. This is good news, joyful news. And yet this is the first time a response is almost a little less than joyful. Certainly he's praising him in the temple. Hey, the sun is here. The light is here. But he's now saying that this light has come. But not everyone's going to respond positively to that light. Not everyone's going to be happy. So while there are many who joyfully celebrate the coming of Jesus, there's also going to be people who see the light, and rather than enjoying the sunshine, they'd rather hide in the shadows. So like you can imagine a household, if you have kids especially. Imagine a household with kids of various ages. We have three daughters, 13, 10, and 5, so we have a good spread of ages and different stages in their childhood. They, they react to the light and darkness differently, right? So a little kid is afraid of the dark, right? So think of a toddler. The dark is unsettling. You want a night light. She wants a light on in the hallway maybe. Because she's scared. It's an unsettling thing. And if you have kids, if you have toddlers that age and they're like ours, as soon as they see the sun is up, they want up and they want breakfast. Right? Like they're excited for the day. They don't want to be in bed anymore. They don't like night. They like the daytime. For them, light is comforting. There's a sense of peace and security. But imagine that same household, a teenager or a young adult. They respond a little differently, Right? to when they see the sun come up or when you as mom and dad, you come in and you flip the light on and say, hey, you need to get up and get ready for school. They're not quite as joyful. 
right? You know, they're not seeing this is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. What do they do? They, they, they flip over. They pull the pillow over their head. They pull their blankets up. I, I want no part of that. I like my place right here in bed. Mom, please turn the light off, right? Simeon prophesied, listen, not everyone is going to enjoy and love this light that's come. Not everyone's going to love it. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason not everyone joyfully stands in the light of Christ. And Jesus tells us why, actually. In John chapter 3, another wonderful passage. John chapter 3, Jesus says, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever, does, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Why do some resist the light? Because light exposes, doesn't it? Because light exposes those parts of our lives that we don't want exposed. And many people think, you know, it's easier to just live in the darkness where sin and righteousness is not acknowledged rather than face it. Because if I face it, that means I have to deal with it. It means acknowledging that I need saving. Right? Most will not embrace light because the light is humbling, isn't it? The light of Christ is humbling as it shines in our life. Right? You can't submit to a king, even a good one, until you acknowledge you're not him. And you can't accept a savior until you admit that you need saving. And it takes light to shine in our heart to see that. The light reveals that you aren't perfect and you do need a savior. And so Jesus is both a Lord and Savior for some, and at the same time, he is called a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for many. Because they don't like the light. We don't enjoy it. We don't like those things pointed out. It's humbling. And because of this, what happens, because this light is so exposing in our hearts, um, it's very tempting to, um, especially in our culture today, it's very tempting to, we might say, adjust the light of Jesus a little bit. Like, rather than stepping outside uh, and turning your face to the warmth of the blazing sun, you might rather sit in a windowless room with lights on a dimmer switch so you can kind of adjust how much amount of light that you want in the room. But you understand, Jesus cannot be controlled with a dimmer switch. Right? When we open the word, we're exposing ourselves to the light of the world. And we're forced to either accept him, uh, everything that he is and everything he taught, or reject him completely. You understand this. There is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. Regardless of how you might feel, regardless of what culture might say. I remember we, we had a, a young couple in our church in, in Italy where we were before we got here. And I was counseling this, this couple and, and the guy, he was kind of new to our church. I, I didn't really know him that well. Um, and so I asked him, I said, hey, what do you think of Jesus? Um, what do you believe about him? Uh, and he gave an answer that I've heard other times. Uh, certainly since then, you've probably heard it. You might have said it yourself. And this is what he said. He said, Cody, I, conf- I-, I believe I'm a Christian. I would confess that I'm a Christian. 
because I believe Jesus was a good moral teacher. Um, but he told me, I, I don't believe that, that Jesus is the son of God who needed to die for my sins and all that other stuff. But I do like his teaching, so I'd say I'm a Christian. Um, you might have heard that. You might have said that. You might even say that this morning. Um, you like a lot, little bit of Jesus, but not all of him. That, that's pretty common. Um, but but I, what I want to caution you with this morning, with the same thing I told him, is that if you like the teachings of Jesus, you're going to have to come to terms with the fact that Jesus taught that he was more than just a good teacher. That he'd come to save the world from their sins. To shine light into our hearts. To show us that we need a savior. And that he would live the sinless life that you and I could never live. And die on a cross that we deserve but don't have to because he did. And that he would have victory over death so we wouldn't have to suffer. That's what Jesus taught. So understand, you can't successfully dim the light of the world. It can't happen. And so as Christians, we we acknowledge Jesus demands a lot. He makes some really hard claims. The light is very bright. It's exposing. We're called to repent of our sin and take up our cross and follow him. But listen, we joyfully do that. We joyfully do so because we know that in him we receive more than we could ever hope. Right? It's true that being exposed to the light will reveal all of our sinfulness. It will. In the light, we find hard to accept truths about our unrighteousness. But understand the good news of the gospel says that as we turn to him, not only is our sin exposed, not only do we find truth, but we actually find grace and acceptance as well. Right? You understand this, that in the gospel, Jesus doesn't shine the light uh, on our hearts and then quickly turn it off out of disgust for what he sees. The light of the world is the light that welcomes the world. And so as the light of Christ shines on your life and as he exposes those areas of your heart that need repenting of, let me encourage you, I want to exhort you, don't turn away from it. Don't turn away from it. Humble yourself under it. Accept what Christ says about you and your need for him. Doing so, as Simeon said, is actually going to not lead to your falling, but to your rising. And by the way, that word rising, as he used there, is used for, there's the same word used for resurrection in other places. In other words, we will die to self, but we will live forever in him if we humble ourselves to the exposing light of Christ. Don't turn away. Open up to the light. But that's not the only one who's at the temple. There's some other people there we can read about. Again, Luke chapter 2, verse 36. If you remember Dr. Luke here, when he gave us the purpose for writing this gospel, he said, I'm trying to give the fullest account possible that I can about the life and ministry of Jesus. And so he will include kind of like these side stories and other small characters, we might say minor characters, in, in the story. And this is one of them. Simeon's certainly one of them, but also this person. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So again, Simeon's not alone here. There's many people at the temple, 
Anna, who's a prophetess, she's there. She's waiting with eager anticipation, just like many other people, the text says, that we're waiting. When is, gonna, when is God going to fulfill his promise? When is God going to bring the consolation of Israel that he promised back in the Old Testament? When is God going to redeem Israel? <clears throat> and she sees Jesus, and she responds with thanksgiving and praise. And she goes and tells other people. And this morning, you might be waiting with eager anticipation for something. You might be growing with despair this morning at the state of the world, or maybe even just the state of your life. And you're asking questions like, why in the world are these things like this? Why is the world like this? Why is my life like this? Why can't I find satisfaction? Why can't I find peace? Why can't I find hope? Why can't I find purpose and joy and meaning and security? Understand that far worse than any curse of the Bambino, our world is under the curse of sin. The curse of the fall. But the good news of the gospel is that through the sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus, we can be redeemed from that curse. And for those of us who have responded to the light of Christ in repentant faith, we can say, just like Simeon, my eyes have seen my salvation, and now I can depart in peace. But we can go a step further, and we can say, and I can even live in peace. So this morning, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, know that all that your heart's longing for, the longings for peace and joy and acceptance and everything else are found in the one for whom you were created. You understand, the Bible teaches this. In Ecclesiastes, the Bible teaches that when God created man, he created eternity in your heart. And so this ache for eternity can only be healed by the eternal one. Right? And so you've been waiting, and you don't know, and you've never known, but you've been longing for Jesus. It's as if you've been waiting in the temple without knowing why you're there or for who you were waiting. But we get to declare the good news this morning. The light has come. The sun has risen. The darkness doesn't have to overcome your life. The, come, the light has come to shine brightly in the darkness of this world and in the darkness of your life. And so we encourage you, come out of the shadows and put your faith in Jesus today. But if you are here this morning and, and you have put your faith in Jesus, if you've, if you've trusted in Christ, we see a beautiful picture of the expectant life here in the life of Anna, don't we? We see this great char- uh, life characterized by expectant hope. Because what does she do when she hears about Christ and knows that he's here? What does she do? She sings praise, certainly, but then she goes and tells other people. Right, so understand in the gospel story, as we walked from Genesis to Revelation, that the light has come. There's also a, a part in, in, in the Bible that says this light who has come through Christ, certainly he is the light of the world. However, his people become the mediators of that light. This is what Peter meant in 1 Peter 2 when he said that we have now been called to declare the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We mediate that. We speak of it. We rejoice of it. We tell other people of it. This is what we're called to do. Just like Anna, we go out and we share the light of Christ with those who are waiting for an answer that they have no idea exists. But there's also a sense in which we get to remind each other of this, don't we? Right? We need reminding of this, that the light of the world has come. Even if you're a Christian, you still get discouraged when you watch the news, right? You still get discouraged when you get bad news at work and at home. And we need to be reminded, you know what? The darkness that seems so prevalent in the world and so prevalent in our life today, here's the good news. It won't always be this way. 
And we need to be reminded of that, don't we? And so when we gather, we open the word, we're, we're reminding each other. Listen, the, the sun has risen. The sun has come. God is dispelling the darkness through the light of his sun. And so now we rejoice in his birth, but even more than that, his life and death and resurrection and the truth that one day he's going to come again and everything will be made new again. The darkness will not have the final say. And so now we wait with eager anticipation because when he comes, the darkness will be dispelled, but this time for good, for good, for all eternity. That's good news, isn't it? So listen, though not everyone's going to love him, Jesus, the light of the world, has come. We rejoice in that. And we, through repentant faith, no longer have to live in the darkness. We don't have to live in the shadows, but in the marvelous light of our Savior. Don't fear the light that exposes your heart, because in it you find acceptance and grace. Rejoice in it. Can we pray this morning? Heavenly Father, again, we're so thankful for our time together. Lord, how we need reminding that as dark as the night seems, Lord, you dispel the darkness with your light. God, as dark as the days seem in our life, Jesus, the light of the world, has the final say. And Father, like Simeon, we rejoice this morning that the sun has risen, that the light has come for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of the people of Israel. And so this morning, we rejoice in that truth. And Lord, this morning, if, if, if there's someone who hasn't put their faith in Christ, who's preferred the shadows, who've feared being exposed by your word, by your light. God, I pray this morning, by your spirit, would you give them new faith today? Would you overwhelm them with a sense of acceptance and love and grace as they repent of their sin and turn to you? And God, for us as a church, may we be faithful to remind one another that as dark as it seems, it won't always be this way. That we'd be faithful to go out and tell people of the light that has come in Jesus Christ that what they've been waiting for and hoping for is found in Christ. God, I pray that we be a church that's faithful to that, that loves your word, that loves the light that it points to, and is faithful to speak of it and rejoice in it. God, we love you. We pray for your blessing on the rest of our time today. In Jesus' name, amen.